You're listening to episode 96 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing. We're a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. My name is Simon Jones. And my name is Steph McKenna. And we are recording this on 27th of May 2020 here in Norwich. So on the show today, we have Brechia Hofstetter. This is the full interview, a sample of which you may have heard way back in episode 85 when it was part of our Early Career Writers Resources pack talking about method. But this is the full interview between Brechia and Peggy talking about all kinds of things. Uh, This was recorded back in October when Brechia was staying here in Norwich at Dragon Hall as our writer-in-residence, something which obviously is not happening at the moment. (laughs) One of the many things that has been put on pause for a while. So listening to this is really interesting, actually. It's like a little window into the past. Is it a time capsule? It is, yeah. It's like a reminder of of how things were just a few months ago and the fact that people could travel internationally and and (laughs) stay at a a place and meet other people. Bizarre, isn't it? (laughs) I know. Hopefully it's a reminder of where we'll get back to at some point. Brechia was here while working on her new book and was exploring Norwich and in particular looking at what spirituality means in a secular society. Norwich being an interesting example of a city that is both apparently, according to polls, the the most atheistic city in England, I think. Yeah, most secular city. Yeah, and yet we have about a million churches. <laughs> we do. A church for every Sunday of the week, I believe. And a pub for every day. Eh? That is the one. Yes. Uh, so yeah, we have this, it's a curious city that has a very long history of religion and spirituality and yet has somehow ended up being uh, the most secular in the 21st century. We contain multitudes. Yes. Yes. Everyone's welcome. But yeah, Brechia talks a lot about issues of anxiety, stress, burnout, sleeplessness, there's a couple of references in here, actually, which we should probably explain before we dive in. So this was back in October when the cathedral here in Norwich had recently installed a helter-skelter in the middle of the building. Ah, uh, Yes, the controversial helter-skelter. Exactly, yeah. So this was this is a full-size uh, fairground-style helter-skelter in the middle of the cathedral, um, which people were invited to go and check out and... It was very controversial. Some people did not like it being a cathedral. Other people thought it was fantastic and was bringing people into the church to check it out. Um, So the whole mixture of responses. And this was going to be followed up, I think this year, by uh, a dinosaur called Dippy. (laughs) Oh, I forgot about Dippy. I forgot about Dippy's visit, which was also going to be quite controversial, housing a dinosaur in a cathedral. Yeah, so if you're not from the UK, you might not be aware that Dippy the dinosaur was a dip. Diplodocus? Or is it Diplodocus? Yeah. I'm never Diplodocus, sure. Diplodocus, I think. Is Diplodocus? Okay. Uh, which used to be, and for decades, was in the foyer of the Natural History Museum down in London. That's now been replaced, I think, by a blue whale. But the skeleton of this dinosaur is touring the country. And it was supposed to be in Norwich in the cathedral uh, this year. But I, I assume that's been postponed or has been rethought somewhat. But again, obviously, it's an interesting juxtaposition of having a dinosaur in a cathedral. Um, so lots of these issues uh, discussed on the podcast between Brechia and Peggy, and it makes for fascinating listening. And here's Peggy chatting with Brechia back in October. 
Hello everyone, um, I'm Peggy Hughes, I'm the Programme Director here at the National Centre for Writing um, and it's a great pleasure this afternoon to get to spend a little bit of time on the podcast with Brechia Hofstede, um, who's been with us for the month of October. Um, with thanks to the support of the Dutch Foundation for Literature. Um, Brecky has been uh, in the cottage on site here at the National Centre for Writing at Dragon Hall. Um, and we're going to just have a little chat about her and her work to date and, and also um, what she's been working on while she's been here with us in Norwich. Any impressions of our fine city and so on. Um, I'm going to just say a little bit more about Brecky uh, uh, for those uh, listeners out there that have yet to discover her work. So she presently lives in Amsterdam and studied art history and French in Utrecht, um, Paris and Berlin. Her debut novel, The Sky Over Paris, which was published in 2014, was nominated for the Golden Book Owl, the Libris Literature Prize and the Anton Wachter Prize, and was translated into Danish and German. In 2016, her second book was published, entitled The Rediscovery of the Body. Um, and a little quote here from Huma, which Brecky, I guess, is a magazine. Yes, it's a Belgian magazine. A magazine. Um, and this is, this is, I think, fab and sort of sums up, I guess, the book. In a series of crystal clear essays, Brecky Hofstede investigates the turbulent marriage between body and mind and tries to glue the pieces in between. To this end, she seamlessly blends anecdotes about burnout into philosophical considerations and practical tips. Um, and then I guess the third book, which I was very interested to discover had two different titles in English in the world, which I'd like to ask you about, which are Drive and Drift. Um, and it sort of follows the, the journey of a young woman who runs away from home in the dead of night. Um, so yeah, that's just to set the scene. So I reckon, hello. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to the Smith Room mm-hmm. in, in Dragon Hall. Um, I guess I just wanted to start by asking you to take us back to before you were here in Norwich, to your aspirations around um, the residency, your expectations of Norwich, the plans you had and what you wanted to do with the residency. Can you set that scene for us? Yeah, sure. Well, I I was hoping to come here and work on my third novel, which is Drive or Drift. (laughs) And um, because I've I've had a busy time, it's been a while since I was able to work on that book, so my plans were a bit... Um, stalled, I guess, for that. And I knew that I wanted to read and write and learn and speak to people about things connected to spirituality, um, because that's one of the themes of the book, how to find like a modern spirituality for those who have no faith in God or have never been in in the religious tradition. Um, and of course, if you uh, once you set to work on that, once you've got time on your hands to think about that, then it very quickly develops. So it was really nice to get into a kind of, um, uh, everything kind of speeded up for me when I started. Oh. But before I came, because it had been on hold for a while because I had to do other things, mm-hmm. um, I, I wasn't sure in detail what to expect. Mm-hmm. I just really was looking forward yeah. to having yeah. time. Yeah. And that was really helpful. I mean, is it, is it par- partly then when you're away from home, I guess, away from your kind of normal context that the space opens, you know, both in your head and Absolutely. in a day? Absolutely. You, you have more attention, I suppose. You you walk around in a, a place you don't know, so you notice more, you pay more attention, mm-hmm. which is always a very good state of mind to be in for a writer, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that feeds into the work in unexpected ways, so, for instance, one of the things I've been doing here is um, to, to walk around a lot in the city because I knew that Norwich has a lot of uh, medieval churches. And I took 
up the habit of just entering them mm. by chance as I, as I pass them. Many of them, some of them are still in service. Some of them are art centers or many are vintage shops or <laughs> antique boutiques. Um, and one of them, there was a sign saying um, medieval martial arts training. So, and that was actually here in, in King Street. So I went in, it was a Sunday afternoon or a Sunday morning. Um, and they said, well, do you want to join? And they had this whole ring set up with um, people uh, yielding kind of uh, swords wrapped in, in soft um, uh, tissue and just beating each other. What? And so I joined and that was really, so I've been enjoying the uh, heritage in, in weird and wonderful ways. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot I want to ask you from what you've just said, but how, how does the um, how do churches here, I guess, compare to ones? Is this something you would do when you're at home in your home place, like going into churches, or what's the no? Difference? I think I think it helps that you're outside of your own city, and therefore you notice things differently, and also you have maybe more of a, like a visitor's mindset, so you could just dip in and dip out um, with curiosity. Mm. Um, if I'm in Amsterdam. There's a church on the way to the supermarket, but I'm on my way to the supermarket. Um, and also, I suppose it's, for me, the whole subject of religion is not something I am used to or feel very comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have a religious, that's not where this no, interest has come from? No, not at all brought up in a religious uh, family. So um, I suppose it's, um, the threshold is lower if you're somewhere else and it's it's a different kind of yeah. um, way of approaching mm. a church yes yeah, yeah. Um, why then if I can ask not having been brought up in a religious context what has drawn you now to that that whole avenue of research and interest because I think it's a very interesting one around what what we we're replacing spirituality with in a secular society can you say a little bit more about um, that well one of the things I've noticed I used to work actually in Brussels in, in um an organization, a European organization, which tried to protect or find ways to use the religious heritage all over Europe, which mm. is vacant. There's thousands of churches vacant. And the, in fact, there's a church closing in the Netherlands every week because oh. there's so few people attending. Um, so this was my first, I was trained as an art historian, so that was purely art historical interest for me then. Um, but I've been wondering what replaces these um mm the function that a church used to have in the, in the yeah. life of, of people. Um, and if you look at what people do now on Sundays, it's mostly shopping. Yeah. And because of the rise in things like um, anxiety, stress, depression, and burnout, I've been starting to wonder, is there something we're missing here? Mm -hmm. And have we um, said goodbye to something which did have its uses and which has left a kind of lack yeah. And what do people do to, because I think that a lot of people do sense this a kind of unrest mm -hmm. and it finds different outlets. Um, for me, it's sleeplessness. Mm -hmm. um, so how to deal with that and how to find a kind of, I think many people in my generation are also kind of at a loss for how to lead your life. And there used to be clear answers to those questions, but there aren't anymore, which is mm -hmm. in many ways a good thing because it, it has to do with, you know, individual freedom to lead your life as you want but it's also kind of um well terrifying <laughs> to have to find out every single day for yourself what you're here for yeah. 
Um, so that I never thought of it that way. So that's what got me. Got me. Yes, it's an existential question, really. In in this line of thinking, then, have you? I guess a logical way in would be to speak to people who do have religion. Yes. Can you can you tell us more about those encounters and what they've been like? Um, Yes, that was one of the things I I was hoping to do here, and and which I have done. Um, For instance, um, on my one of my first days here, I had a. there was a talk with uh, Ava Meyer, another Dutch mm-hmm. writer, among others, mm-hmm. and uh, there was someone in the audience who responded to what I had been telling about my project. Um, she called Joanna, and is also uh, an author, um, and she offered to take me around her um, the place where she lives, Walsingham, um, where, where the the Virgin Mary was once supposed to have shown herself, um, and it's 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 a place which draws people religious people because they want to be in this numinous spot mm. um, and she actually lives in an apartment in the abbey grounds of the abbey which was destroyed um, wow, in the 16th century yes it was um, which is where the the vision apparently you know t- took place and where the the, the vision was that the house that was in the vision was recreated by the the lady who had the vision mm. um, and she told me a lot about her experience of living there, um, her conversion to the um, uh, um, Orthodox faith, yeah. and and um, her time with um, um, shamans shamans in um, Siberia, which got her interested in spiritual things. Yeah. So I had meetings like this, which were very interesting because, and I must say that it's quite rare to find people who are not only religious or spiritual but who know how to talk to it mm. to someone who is not yes. or not in their way yeah i think mo- i think everyone is spiritual it's just for instance if you feel awe at a beautiful landscape or because you're in love i think that's part of the same mm. experience but mm-hmm. um, to be able to discuss it is quite rare so yeah. i was lucky to find a couple of people who did yeah I also spoke to um, the Dean of Norwich, actually. (laughs) That was very interesting as well. Uh, Especially about her project of bringing more people into the cathedral by setting up the Helter Skelter. (laughs) I saw the Helter Skelter. Yes, you did. That was very special. Did you write? Yeah, I I didn't. I didn't. I um, got back just in time to catch it before it left. Uh But they had a sermon. She, She probably mentioned this, but they had this final sermon where the... Uh, the Bishop of Lynn, so a nearby bishop, came. He preached from the top of the Helter Skelter, mm. and then he whew, flew down it. And then they turned off all its lights because mm. it was like a fairground, you know, yes. with the little light bulbs. Yeah. And it was hugely moving. I mean, it, it, I did grow up in a religious kind of going to mm. church and stuff, but I, I'm not anymore. But there's still something that you know you can, you can take the girl out of church, but there's yeah. something in there <laughs> that can be removed. Um, but it was it was beautiful. What was moving about it? I think it was especially that, well, the sermon was interesting because mm-hmm. he he's, he used it as a, because, you know, it was quite controversial. I think a lot of people didn't feel, Jen Hedges will have said this, I'm sure, but, you know, that that didn't have a place in church. Um, and so his sermon was about that what it was doing in church, which was about kind of bringing people to a new, to see things differently and to see things new. So that was it was a quite a moving um sermon in that regard but actually it was just the visual was kind of really Mm -hmm. impactful there with the kind of stained glass behind it and this kind of crazy big you know tall uh, thing and then that when they turned the lights off it just felt really um 
I don't know, just really sad. Like mm. the fair yeah. circus had gone away. You know, somehow it was it, it was it was that oxymoron, the kind of juxtaposition of that piece being in that place. I think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was anyway. Really. Yeah, and, and now they bring in Dippy. Yes, uh, <laughs> a huge dinosaur, yeah. um, which is also you know as a metaphor of <laughs> how yeah. to revive the church to bring in a dinosaur is is quite interesting. Oh, yeah. I think. It will be interesting to see how that's received. And yes, I mean, in in speaking to people like Joanne, Joanna, mm-hmm. Joanne, um, and and the dean, um, I guess what did it did it have any effect on your own attitudes towards religion? Did you think ah this is what my life's missing, or oh I find mm-hmm. I get it now, or or what what did what no, did those... what it did for me was to to show uh, me I I used to consider religion as something quite apart from me, which is, I had nothing to do with and which had nothing to do with me. Mm. Um, I'm beginning to see more of the, um, the ways in which you can share re- religion under the heading of spirituality, where I do have a kind of access because I can be moved or feel taken beyond myself by something which I find impressive or mm. awe-inspiring. Um, so I've been trying to feel out kind of common ground where I, where I can relate. Mm. Um, and in that respect, it was also very interesting to go and talk to Karen Armstrong, um, who I spoke to at her house in London uh, last mm-hmm. Sunday. Um, and she's, of course, written about this mm-hmm. a lot. And uh, it was re- very, very nice to be able to ask some of the questions I still had after reading a couple mm-hmm. of her uh, books. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder then, in sort of putting your own question to you mm-hmm. about what people put in their lives that replaces spirit or that, that answers some of the questions that spirituality answers, um, what are what are those things for you then that that you know bring awe or comfort or encouragement or whatever mm. spirituality does? Um, for me, it's um, being in nature. For instance, it's conversation, which can really challenge you and take you out of yourself and you know having a good conversation which just runs away with you with a, with a good friend or, or a stranger you don't know um is just one of the best experiences uh, i can think of um other things which i would mention is for instance if you're in a team sport or playing music together mm-hmm. and something in the the group or in the dynamics or in the chemistry just works mm-hmm. perfectly and you lose track of it's like you are not just one person, but there's actually a team spirit mm. in almost a literal sense, yeah. which you yeah. can feel. Things like that. For me, it's more in the social and the natural. In, um, but it's, and this will sound moralistic, but it's very much also in things which are not about me, mm. like my achievement or what, an ambition. Or if if it's about that, I very quickly get you know uh, closed in mm-hmm. mm. I see I see what you mean I think that's where um things like hymns have a big role when it comes to yes. to, to, mm. to religion and so on it's that kind of it's the communality of um of it. there's a comfort somehow in everyone knowing the words and the tune you know to the same thing I imagine I've yeah. been to Evensong in the cathedral oh, yeah. and of course I don't know the words but it's still very beautiful to listen yeah. to and I can you know enjoy the music and even be moved by it but then as soon as the sermon starts I get drawn back into the, the words, the verbal, and I think I can't. I don't believe this. I can't agree <laughs> with this, and that's where I get the error. So, yeah. but but I do. I've tried to open myself to a kind of understanding of this kind of um, yeah. process or experience. Yeah. 
So I want to ask you then about how you're going to about the novel that mm. you're you're working on then, and how this these conversations and and what I think I've heard you call ocular research, the kind of looking <laughs> at everything and yeah. and soaking it all up. What's the what's how does that play in relation to the to the writing and the planning around the next book? Oh, it's always very hard to say, but and up until now, I've always found that location and place are very almost characters in the books in the end and they give a real sense of atmosphere and they color the whole book but it's hard to predict in advance which places and which parts will be left Mm. after years of writing and I'm just at the beginning I think I have two or three years to go so it's very very early to be talking about this and I say two or three years I would previously probably have said just a year but I know from experience that I usually tend to think I know where I'm going with the novel and it's never, it never turns out that way. It just never does. I've heard some writers say it's almost like they lose agency when, when you start to write the thing and it goes in a direction that you don't anticipate it will somehow, that it's not almost like it's moving through you rather than that you're in control of it. Is that something you would endorse or, or, no. or, or why does it not turn out the way you think? Just well, I, I tend to think that the novel is supposed to be more intelligent than the person who's writing it, which sounds strange, but I just mean that there's so many moments of concentration and focus going into the book, and there's also so many um, so many decisions you make on an in- unconscious level, mm. which somehow something you've read somewhere or, or felt or experienced or heard will find its way into the book without you knowing it. Mm. Um, and the sum of all those parts of concentration and focus and uh, hidden meanings um, will will at some point start to show a kind of structure or coherence which you hadn't planned. Mm. Um, because if if I'm making a if I'm planning and plotting a book, it's just maybe one afternoon where I'm trying to concentrate hard, but it's I'm also mm. kind of cranky and maybe I didn't sleep well, and it's it's a limited yeah. you know, bit of time and work. Whereas the whole book has this whole concentration to it and I think that's why it's it always surprises the writer but for me it's not like it is a, a being of on it onto itself and has a mind of its own mm. it's more that we always tend to both overestimate our own cleverness and mm. underestimate <laughs> because we overestimate the conscious cleverness and we underestimate whatever goes you know below the radar mm. mm-hmm. that's an idea that I really like actually there's an Irish uh, the Irish writer Kevin Barry um, li- lives in Sligo in the west of Ireland and he bought an old um, police barracks and he said when he moved in he thought he wouldn't be you know he wouldn't be surprised if these old police guys snuck into his work <laughs> and they did they did they, did. they kind <laughs> of ghosted in and appeared I wonder then what are the things in your case and maybe they're structural and too difficult to define but are there are there motifs or individuals or ticks that sneak in to your work unbidden um there might be but it's that and again it's hard but for instance i've been reading julian of norwich while mm. i was here because of, of course her, her church is just around the corner and i've been in there a couple of times and l- looked at her cell mm. which you can imagine anyone locking themselves up in for the rest of their lives but do you want to describe it for people that have um, <laughs> well the, the church is a reconstruction it was it was bombed in the second world war unfortunately but um, near the front of the church to the right, there's a small wooden door. And if you go down a couple of steps, there's a, 
stone cell, I think it's about the size of this room, maybe 20 or 25 mm. square meters, with a couple of windows, but very high up, so you can't really see through them. Um, and there's um, a crucifix and a kind of place where you can burn candles. Um, and apparently she was in there for, from her 30th, from when she was my age, so the end of her life. She lived quite a long time, I think. Um, and the only thing she had was contact with the servant, and people could yell through the window and ask her questions about in the meaning of life and guidance and, and yeah. spiritual <laughs> help and so forth. But yeah, but I, I still I still grapple with with this text. So I, I'm not sure. Maybe it will find its way. But I can relate to where she describes quite viscerally her, the physical impression she had when she was receiving this vision of Christ. For instance, she describes the blood on his face, which looks like fish scales, oh. which is an image. It was like a nice, like, yeah. visual image. Um, but then when she goes off into uh, things which to me sound like church dogma, dogmas, um, and she explains why, although God tells her all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well, which is lovely, I'd like to believe that, um, then she goes on to describe what will happen to sinners because you know the church says then they go to hell so there's a paradox there um so as soon as she goes off in those into those alleys i can't really follow mm. her so the, it's it's still a a, a discovery for me I, mm. i'm not sure where it will take me mm. interesting do you know you know that the room we're presently in in dragon hall um the priest who looked after julian's church this was his house this little room was where he lived so and then the priest will also be the one who you know Will visited her visited when she her. was supposedly dying and when she had her vision. I guess so, because this this hall, this dragon hall, was built around the same time that that Julian was over there, mm. and so that's a mind blowing concept that we're in the, the the person who inhabited this room may well have tended her, or that's why it's got the little cross on yes, the door. Yes, that is mind blowing. Mm. Time. Um, what what I do want to ask you is what because I, I believe your second book was essays, yes. non fiction. Um, I guess I want to understand a bit more about what a fictional treatment. Um, can do that a non-fictional one can't. So in, in the case of these interviews and the people you've been meeting, um, why, why, why make it a novel? Um, well, I, I suppose it can be both. I could now write a couple of essays about this experience, and I might. It's often the way I process things and get my head around them. Um, but I think then to allow them to uh, reach a kind of level of abstraction so that they can be more less particular and more universal, you need the freedom of a novel. Um, I guess it liberates facts from a kind of time and place mm. and makes you able to play around with them and, and show similarities or mm. patterns of thought and follow those. Um, yeah, I, I, I tend to think that the novel is ultimately always about universal human themes and human traits. Mm. And it's easier to reach those, I think, if you give yourself the liberty that a novel affords. I wonder at which point for you then, with you, you mentioned um, you can't start it too soon. That it's that, that you've done that in the past. Yes. <laughs> Are you prepared to say a little bit about what 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 happened and why you just what what you? Well, meant? actually, I wrote two between the first and the second novel. I wrote two novels, which one of them I threw away in its entirety, oh. and then the other I Gosh. just kept bits and pieces, which then you went throw to. Away? Well, I just I wasn't satisfied. I just thought it was. Um, a good piece of homework, like diligent homework, but it, it lacked a kind of uh, life to it. And I should have known because while I was writing it, it was just this 
endless struggle. And of course, writing can be a struggle, but it shouldn't be so for years on end. And it shouldn't be like, uh, you shouldn't sit at your desk and think, oh, here we go again. <laughs> it, it, if, if, the, if it's not, if it doesn't feel to the writer like it's worthwhile to be writing it, it won't feel right. to the reader as though he should you know, yeah. really read it. I mean, I'm interested to know, was it a ritualistic throwing? Was it a kind of, you know, how did, how did this play? Or was it no, just delete, well, just move it into the trash? How did that? Um, I, no, I did have, you know, print out, which I, prints, big stacks of paper, which I threw out, but it is still, you know, ghosting around somewhere in, 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 in mm -hmm. clouds or files somewhere on some old computer, I suppose. I didn't radically delete it all. Okay. I, I think I was... It might someday prove useful, or I might mm. someday go back and see, well, what was it that I thought was so unappealing and what went so wrong? Mm. I didn't do that yet. I think I had, my, had enough of it, so yeah. I just yeah. didn't want anything to do with it anymore. Okay. You just knew it wasn't the right... Uh, yes, after many, <laughs> many tries... Um, I didn't. Did, did anyone else read it? I mean, I'm interested. Yes, my, my, my then publisher read it and they were actually happy to publish and to go along and were not, not very happy with me for oh, no. being so stubborn. But, well, didn't, I was. Didn't feel right. No. For you then with this, the one you're sort of, that's working away at the minute, at which point do the characters and the other kind of, you know, the, the, those elements... Um, come into the mix is that already the case that there's already a character who's going to be the vehicle or the kind of central force for this or is um, that yes there is a character who's called Hadeweg or Hadewig, um who is actually it's the name of a, a Dutch um, medieval um, visionary or uh, yeah religious woman um, quite comparable actually to Julian in many ways who also wrote about um, the God as, as a force of love as, as opposed to some strict um, punishing mm. kind of character um, and I got interested in her by accident because I had a, a very good friend who had the same name mm. um, and uh, she passed away suddenly unexpectedly mm. um, and I, th I guess that prompted me to read more about the you know you, you, you find a replacement activity you can't really no. deal with the person anymore which you'd like to do so you find a way around that um and so i got interested in hadewig <laughs> is that quite an unusual name is it a, like it is it's, yeah. it's very old-fashioned mm. and anyone who will who's called that immediately calls to mind the original hadewig because it's so rare to, yes, have, to yeah. have people have that name well, that's fab that she kind of led you on this path to this. I suppose, and I, and I also suppose that, you know, losing someone or being confronted with birth or death mm. are moments when most people will start to ask themselves uh, painful questions about life. Mm. Uh, like, all right, well, it could be over at any moment. What am I, what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. what, what are my plans? So it has to do with it, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. I mean, it sounds like that's... Um, there's, that's a, there's a serendipity there to having gone on that direction. How, I mean, how much, what other serendipities, I suppose, inform your work or have informed uh, your work? Bookshops, like going into bookshops, browsing, happening upon a cover that you like or a title which draws your attention. Um, I suppose many of the ideas which find their ways into my work um, come from reading mm. and most of what I read is I come upon by chance. Uh, yeah. I did want to ask you actually about um, 
I know you attended an event with um, Megan Bradbury, who's a Norwich-based writer, which was about reading as a writer and what, mm-hmm. what that means. So I'm glad you brought up reading habits. I just wanted to ask you which, which writers then not just informed you as a reader, but gave you permission to be the writer you are, if you see what I mean. Like, so there's the kind of reading and, and, and being having the serendipity of dis- discovering mm. things, but also just which which writers unlocked a path for you, I suppose. So slightly two separate uh, things a little bit. I think um, one type of writer which really which was meaningful to me is writers who make mixes of different genres. Mm. I, like, you know, having essayistic pieces in a novel or having a book which is neither one nor the other, which is mm. autofiction and memoir and essay and, you know, uh, psych- psychology or philosophy. For instance, um, I really loved um, The Argonauts, oh, Maggie Nelson, or The Bluets, or everything she writes. I saw her I being interviewed. Really? Maggie Nelson. She I'm so was, jealous. She was as good as you would hope that she would be. I'm she glad. was amazing. This is in London. Yeah. I love her work. Mm. Well, me too. Yeah. And similarly, um, uh, Ben Lerner has yeah, this really like intricate, mm. intelligent um, books full of facts and winks and play with language and... Um, so I think books like that and writers like that gave me the permission to be cerebral as well mm. and to, to combine a kind of especially um, Maggie Nelson does this very well she combines this hugely physical uh, quality very poetic very mm. impressive strong um, strongly voiced strongly worded uh, with this huge scope of not knowledge and reading uh, and she is not afraid to be too complicated. She doesn't underestimate her reader, yeah. which I love. Yeah. In that event, I love that you could almost see her thinking out loud. You know, that in, in public events or being on a stage, I think it's easy to feel you've got to rush quickly to say, you know, to mm. say something. She didn't, she kind of, she she thought about what she wanted to say mm. and then she said it. Yeah. And it just felt like quite a rare gift, you know, to see someone just like listen mm. and then... Um, yeah, interesting. Uh, I do love her work. And, and, and there's also writers like um, Ellie Smith, for instance, mm. who are just completely lyrical and very moving in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I've yes. just remembered something I should send you mm. that I just read this week. The Manchester Literature Festival, where I was two weekends ago, every year they commission a sermon mm-hmm. from a writer. And they commissioned Ali Smith in 2012. So Ooh. she delivered a sermon. So just mm-hmm. in terms of religion and spirituality. Um, and they're all worth reading. But Ali's is, be- as you'd imagine, really beautiful. So I will I'd send that to, to you. Yes, um, I'll remind myself. It's really, really good. Very, very playful. Um, okay, I've just got a couple a couple of final little questions then. Um, which are just mostly around, um, you know, your time in Norwich, really. So I started at the beginning by asking you know, what were your expectations or aspirations for the time? You leave in just a day or two. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how has it been then this month here? Oh, in... quite lovely. Yeah. Yeah. I've really enjoyed my time. And Norwich was a surprise to me. I didn't know it was such a beautiful city with so much and so, yeah, alive, culturally alive as well. Mm. Uh, I just never, you know, never been on holiday here or something. It's not a place I'd visited before, but I was really um, happily surprised. Good. Good. What did you, uh, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of the things you've done in terms of the research, but are there any other things that, you know, for anyone listening that might be visiting Norwich or any other writers that might come come our way, um, what would your top tips be, I guess? Um, top tips? <laughs> Ooh, well, um, <laughs> well, there's lots of good places to eat. 
I had lots of nice scones and cake especially. I loved browsing the antique shops on Magdalene Street, mm. um, taking a train out to the coast, uh, nice. Cromer, and then going for a walk and maybe uh, take a train back from a different station. That was really nice. Um, I, I, I forgot the name, but I think it's called Mousehold Heath, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. a kind of a grassy spot where you overlook the, the city, which was really nice. Yeah, and I've, I spent a lot of time on the Riverside Walk, obviously, as everyone in visiting will probably do. It's but a it, nice walk. It never, yeah. never stops. Yes. Yeah. And just then finally, Brecky, um, and thank you for chatting today. It's nice to hear what you've been up to. Um, I just wanted to ask, so what, what is next then? You know, just in terms of, yes, the book you're working on, but just more generally, what, what happens now? You go back, you... Just what are you working on? That's um, I'm, I'm also working on, or struggling with rather, <laughs> uh, as either a series of essays or a book about sleep and sleeplessness. Oh. But it's a, such a slippery topic that I'm not sure um, what it will be. So okay. that's one of my like headache projects. <laughs> um, something else on the agenda is just a couple of journalistic pieces. Mm -hmm. I, I think I might write about my meeting with Karen Armstrong. Mm -hmm. um, I think I might write about witchcraft, ah. which is another topic I got interested in. Yeah. Um, and like a deviant spirituality and what it can lead to. And I will also be emigrating, which is a problem, <laughs> which is a problem and a project all on its own. So I'll be, I'll be moving to a tiny hamlet in France. Wow. Um, so leaving the city, it's a big adventure and I'm not sure what will be waiting but I will have a room of my own wow. and um, as Virginia Woolf is also one of my heroines I think that's a, a very good one thank you very much thank you thank you for listening and thanks to Peggy and Brechia for that lovely chat as always if you have questions or want to get in touch with us you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writer Centre you can check out our Facebook page or sign up to our newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk you can also join our new Discord community the invite link to which you can find down in the show notes please do subscribe rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find it take care keep writing and we'll see you on the next episode mm -hmm.